Hi, I'm Paul, and this is ArcNext Sessions, episode 12. This week, we'll be sharing a discussion we recently had with Stephen Ehrlich and Takashi Yanai, founder and partner of Ehrlich Architects here in Los Angeles. We'll be talking with them about Stephen's early years working in the Peace Corps in Africa and how that helped shape his practice in LA. We'll also discuss multicultural modernism, the seamless way their work combines indoor and outdoors, and what kind of people they like to hire. Brian Newman, our legal correspondent, will also join us on today's show to talk about contracts. And uh, judging from some of the threads in our discussion forum, this is an important topic to listen to. So how are my fellow co-hosts doing today? Donna, how's your week been treating you? Good. Busy. Busy things at work. Lots going on. I wanted to mention something that's been exciting. I I mentioned last week that we are going to be working on this house for myself and my husband up in Traverse City. And my husband, being an artist, has already started selecting art that will go in the house. And I showed him this project by uh, someone who was very active on ArcConnect for a while. And he goes by, well, I won't say his pseudonym, but his name is Fred Sharman. And he has a group in Baltimore called Working Group on Adaptive Systems. And they just launched this week a project online called Non- Human Autonomous Space Agency, aka NASA, and it is a collection of images around how non-humans would live and operate in outer space, and they are the most beautiful renderings of manatees in spacesuits that you will ever see. They're gorgeous drawings, very architectural, but also very sort of dreamy and um, just beautiful. And I showed them to my husband, and my husband immediately said, we've got to buy some of those images. So <laughs> they're, they're, it's beautiful artwork, very conceptual and exploratory. Some of it's very architectural. There's a beautiful section drawing, and then some of it is very much like dreamy renderings. So I've been thinking about art this week, art in outer space, which my husband has a body of work that relates to outer space too. So it's fertile ground for us. Cool. Yeah. Ken, what are you up to? Like Donna, crazy busy, thinking about space projects, um, manatees. (laughs) No, no, I've been pretty pretty busy um, with this firehouse. It's going out for bid on uh, next Monday. So I've been really focused on that. Just received my Doug Johnston piece. Pretty nice bag. Nice. Former Archonnect blogger. Yeah. Oh, which which piece did you get? Wow. It's a pretty big bag. One, I forget which number it is. I, I don't have it in front of me, unfortunately. It's still in the box. But um, so dealing with that, dealing with the weather, you know, dealing with a lot of other things. So it's been a pretty challenging week thus far. Cool. Sounds active. Paul, what about you? Been a pretty normal week for me. <laughs> Nothing too interesting to share. Good, because I don't have anything interesting to share either. So we can commiserate in our lack of interesting lives. <laughs> Maybe it's the cold weather that's making life more interesting out in the Midwest. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I thought you were going to say cold weather in LA. And I was just going to say, no, don't even whine about it because we're down to three. We're, we're in single digits here. Down to three or up to three? Down to three? <laughs> both. both. <laughs> we're getting warmer. Yeah. If that helps. We're getting in the 30s. Yeah, we are getting warmer. Yeah. It's all relative. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, this has been, it's, people are getting back to the work week. Holidays are over. We're all getting back into the grind. That's what happens in mid-January. Yeah. Yeah. So that's normal. And I'm- dropping your resolutions. That's about what happens <laughs> at this at this time <laughs> of January. I'm hoping. Exactly. I've been noticing that I've been dropping all of mine already. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> On principle, I do not make New Year's resolutions. So I never have to worry about dropping them. That's a good principle. They say the chances are much greater that you'll be successful in doing what you want to do if you don't make a resolution. Good. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. And if you don't share it with other people. That's the yes. worst. As soon as you tell somebody what your resolution is, you're almost guaranteed to fail. Which you would think it would be the opposite because then you have other people who are somehow like sharing your guilt or kind of poking you at you to uh, keep the resolution. But you'd think so. You think so, yeah. 
It's all that added pressure. It's tough. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping the people at my Y drop their resolution. <laughs> That's been a joke going around the internet this week. Yeah. But don't worry, gym goers. Half these people will be gone yes. by another week or so. They'll stop coming. <laughs> so Yeah, it's hard to do downward dog. <laughs> Or downward dog when you got like five people standing around you. <laughs> standing all around you. Yeah. Against the wall. Yeah. <laughs> so should we uh, listen to our conversation with Stephen Ehrlich and Takashi and I? Excellent. Yeah. Yes. Get to it. All right. Great. Let's go. So before you started your practice in 1979, you spent six years in North Africa in the Peace Corps. Can you talk a little bit about that experience? Sure. Let me also just mention it was two years in the Peace Corps in Morocco. Okay. And then I completed two years of service and uh, actually working as an architect for the Moroccan government placed by the Peace Corps. Then I took a year of traveling across North Africa to Tunisia and then across the Sahara into most of the countries in West Africa. Eventually, after a year of that, took a teaching position on my own, not through the Peace Corps, uh, at Amadou Bella University School of Architecture in Zaria, Nigeria. So that's just a little bit more specificity on that. And that was largely all through the 70s. So what did you take from this experience into your practice? It was truly a, a revelation for me because I became incredibly interested in architecture without architects. Uh, and having lived there for a long time and observing and being part of the culture, if you will, just realized how sensitively each group of people responded to their environment and that the architecture was a very close melding of uh, response to the nature of the climate, the building materials available, and in summary, just discovered the wisdom and beauty of indigenous architecture. Did you have a prior knowledge of North African architecture before going? Not really. I, however, do remember seeing a lecture by Aldo Van Eyck, the wonderful Dutch architect, uh, and he gave a lecture in the late 60s at my university. And he showed images of the Dogon people from Mali, and that did intrigue me. I mean, there was a little... And that's in West Africa, not North Africa. No, it was it was all a, a revelation to me. And living in courtyard houses uh, was a whole new experience. So it it was new and fresh and exciting. And kind of a contrast of experiences if you go from Peace Corps work to then the working for the government as an architect. So was there any specific distinction in those two fields or did you feel they kind of naturally complemented each other? Uh, I would say they were complementary. The, when you're referring to the government, you mean the Moroccan government? Yes. Yes. The, the interesting thing was is that the first assignment I had from them was to design beach cottages for wealthy bureaucrats. And uh, I did that for a few months. And I actually then went to the delegation head, the, the head of the Department of Architecture, and said, you know, I'm a Peace Corps volunteer, and that's not of interest to me. And then he reassigned me to a different project, which was to do um, basically low-cost housing for villagers that had to be relocated because of a dam. And that excited me. And I did a kind of a whole anthropological study of indigenous housing patterns and matrices for at least six months before I felt I could start designing. And I was supported in that effort. So did your experience in Africa, was that where you came up with the concept of multicultural modernism? I would say that was the six-year seed that germinated. The term probably, we hit on the term maybe about 10 years ago, and it does seem like a kind of a good 
catch phrase for our work. It's a very open-ended philosophy for us. Another way to say it is, how can we be very local, but also global simultaneously? And I'm happy to say that my partners are also very interested in the same way of thinking. So it has evolved and it's actually a living construct. It's not a fixed way of looking at things. And then how did you then come to California and start the practice in Culver City? If I understood, you went to school in New York? Yes. Then to Africa and then California. Why California, (laughs) right. Well, all my East Coast tapes were erased, uh, having lived in Africa for six years. And I became very interested in indoor-outdoor relationships, courtyards, warm weather architecture. And my sister was working in the film industry, and I came to visit her, and then the light bulb went on. And I said, yeah, this is the place. And I also felt the throb of a year. This goes back to now, late 70s. I just felt the heartbeat of the city and the multicultural diversity of the city and the freshness and newness of uh, what was happening in art and architecture. So you went to Venice in 1979? Yes, that's right. And you've been um, in Venice since, correct? Yes, except there was like a 10-year period when my children were growing up and Venice was a little rough at the edges that we moved away, but then moved back. Uh, Having lived in Venice for some time myself, when I first moved to LA, I have noticed a pretty huge shift in that area. Can you talk about how that shift has affected your practice as an architect? You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure that that shift has affected the work in any significant way. Uh, The only thing I can say is that the house that I designed for our family, which is in Venice, embodies a lot of the a lot of the thoughts that are part of multicultural modernism. And I would say that, you know, Venice, it's part of the idea that it's a walking community. It's a bicycle community. We did an infill project, not something on the outskirts of the city, not far away. So that's what is significant, I would say. And maybe because now we're, we might move a little bit more into your current practice, um, you've clearly done a lot of work with a huge variety of scale, scale different clients and different varieties of um, actual programming. And that's also included a fair amount of um, renovation work. You've done a couple of Neutra renovations. How would you bring that, what you referred to previously, both the multicultural modernism and also the attention to indoor-outdoor importance, how did you bring those to the renovation projects in particular? Well, was very lucky to work either adjacent to a Richard Neutra house. That was actually the first ground up was a little painting and photography studio adjacent to a Richard Neutra house on the same property. Uh, And that was in the early 80s, completed in 1981. And that was a great challenge in that, you know, how do you build next to a master and what does it mean? And then later on, many years later, renovated a Rudolf Schindler house and uh, also did a fairly significant addition to a Richard Neutra house on the beach in Santa Monica. But those architects, they knew what they were doing. I mean, they had the indoor-outdoor connection completely dialed in. What was available to us were new technologies of sliding glass, and those technologies allowed us to just continue that modernist vision in a bolder, more seamless way, I would say. Um, Going back to your own house, which you uh, briefly mentioned, I definitely want to include some photos of that. It's a really beautiful project in our show notes. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how multicultural modernism was applied to that project and how you incorporated the indoor-outdoor approach to design. Okay, good. First of all, it's a small lot. It's um, 43 feet wide by 132 feet long, 5,700 foot lot. 
infill, reinforcing the fabric of a walking and pedestrian bicycle-friendly community. It was built around three large trees. They were there first. So the house fragments, there's three courtyards. There's no air conditioning. It's all naturally ventilated. There is heating, underfloor heating, natural, well, I should say concrete floors that have been impregnated with iron oxide and have this beautiful, rich, dark brown color. The technology that was embraced developed with a small window company, developed a system of sliding doors that are 16 feet tall by seven and a half feet wide that completely slide away into a pocket. So that idea of evaporating the, completely evaporating the glass, it goes away essentially. And so you can have uh, that sense of an open pavilion is very interesting. Warm materials, interest in wall space. Uh, We have an emerging art collection focusing on actually a lot of Venice artists. Help me out here, Takashi, any any, uh, things you want to add about my house? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think your house is very personal. So Maybe it's a little different than our other houses in that a lot of the life, a lot of what you feel when you're in there is kind of the accumulation of all your experiences, right? So not only is it the architecture, but it's also the artifacts you've collected in your Mm -hmm. travels and also the art that you've collected from your artist friends. So Right. I I will say this, that I I think Takashi's bringing up a good point, that we do try to discover the personal expression of every house we design. It's not about us. It's really about capturing the personality Mm. of each client, and that's special. So with our belief in modern architecture and where it can take you, we're also very interested in capturing personality and their own living culture or lifestyle. I think that's where multicultural modernism has evolved today for us is that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily about African architecture anymore or indigenous architecture in the sense of like an anthropology of a third world culture, but it's about really kind of digging deep and mining into what makes a particular client or a particular community or climate unique. So can you talk about that process in understanding the client's personality and culture and beliefs and maybe how that could differ between a client in Venice that lives down the street or a client on the other side of the world that comes from a completely different cultural background? It's really basic, actually. It's just understanding that ultimately the buildings that we're creating are for the client, you know, and that our egos as artists, architects have you know, just a fraction to do with the project. So it's all about being collaborative and it's understanding that even, you know, someone living in Beverly Hills or Santa Monica, that that is a culture, right? And it's as unique and as special and as intricate and nuanced as a client that might be in Asia or Africa or India. And it's, you know, rooted in Stephen's early experiences that, there was a lot to learn from just observation and listening to a client and feeling the land and all these things. And it's understanding that we may not be the smartest person in the room. It's not about our imposition of our wills onto a client or onto a piece of land, but it's that, uh, you know, trained as architects, we can maybe decipher out of the situation, the client and their needs and the lot and the budget and all these various components that make up a project and be the orchestrator of a project that is 
uniquely suited to what we'll call the culture of the project. You know, just adding on to that, I think we're looking for a resonance and a resonance with the site is very important. We're just finishing a house up in Marin County right now, a beautiful site with redwood trees and live oaks and a very special site. And we actually are using this very beautiful terracotta that has this deep olive green umber color to it that truly resonates with the bark of the redwood trees. It's like as if it jumped off the tree and became clay. So we're trying to find that balance and harmony with the site. And uh, that's very important for us. And as was just mentioned, we're definitely trying to resolve the pragmatic, programmatic needs of every client, but always trying to add a large dose of magic to it. What is it that makes your uh, heart ring happily? That's important to us. How do we make this a truly special place that people will want to be? So in communicating that quality to the client and trying to coordinate and negotiate that kind of atmosphere, have you found that there's been a real difficulty or shift in how you try to do that as the tools of the design have changed throughout your beginning of practice and then through to now? Is the way that you communicate these ideas to clients changing because of that? You know, clearly we have greater and better tools, the computer being the the largest one, but we still build physical models. We still do drawings. We always start the design process with verbal communication and then hand sketching. So in a strange way, the tools are largely similar and sure, we'll use every arrow in the quiver, but the process is, is similar. I would also say it's tied to multicultural modernism in that it's about kind of understanding your place and time. And so, as Stephen mentioned, we still value hand drawings and sketches and physical models, but we don't pretend or we don't think that those are the best tools. We recognize that those are very valuable tools that we're very good at, but we also understand that practice evolves, technology evolves, and that working in one way is not necessarily so different from working in another way. We try to integrate all these things. So even as new technologies evolve, it doesn't mean we abandon the old ways either. You know, we, we try to synthesize them all. I would say that, and now I'm shifting a little bit from residential to, uh, let's say, civic or academic projects or commercial projects, as the scale jumps to a larger, more complex program or design problem, it takes larger teams and more people to interact with the client and understand. Let's say it's like not that long ago, we completed the Walter Cronkite School of Journalism in and mass communication in Phoenix. And we had a substantial team of us, the collaborative nature of our firm, working hand in hand with the school and really not only understanding them in a simple way, but understanding all the programmatic intricacies of a school of journalism. So I think that the culture of our firm and, and our collaborative nature can help us listen and understand and put ideas out there and be a real part of the evolutionary design process. That's truly exciting. So if I can kind of rephrase to see if I understand correctly, the internal structure of the firm and and how the communication is run is kind of an analogy towards how then that coordination is done outside with the client. So how do you determine how large the practice should grow? Uh, Could you maybe explain like over the course of the practice, how 
it's fluctuated with more and less people and how that's come over to uh, coordinating actually with clients? Well, once upon a time back in the old days, I thought a architectural practice should never be bigger than three people. And then it maybe grew to nine and then 15. And, and now we're right around 35 people. And to me, that seems like the sweet spot, but I'm here to uh, sort of go along with the ride now and open-minded. I do like the intimacy of the size of our firm and the diversity of project types we can do. But what are your thoughts on that? (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, this is something we talk about all the time. We are around 35, 40 people. But I think a lot of the things that have kind of evolved over the last 30 years, the partners, uh, so in addition to me, there are two other partners, Patricia Ree and Matthew Cheney, have embraced this way of working. And so therefore, you know, maybe we can leverage ourselves across maybe 50 people. But at the same time, we would never want to lose the sense of family or intimacy that we have, because that's really is essential to us. And I think it comes through in the way we work. And then therefore that translates into the work itself. You know, there is a sense of joy and passion in the work that we would never want to abandon. So I think there was a tiny bit of trepidation about growing too big. And um, I, I think it's not without reason. But um, I think the days of being maybe 20 or 25 people or, or in the past, there's no reason um, because there is a core group that has grown up in the practice that can now teach the next generation, right? So we, we want the work to be significant work. We're, we're not interested in projects that don't have the opportunity where people, where we can listen to them and they can listen to us. So that's important. I know that's vague, but it's, it's, it is a, an essential ingredient uh, that, that is important to us. And also we are able to leverage ourselves by sometimes collaborating with other architects. If we do projects out of town, we'll often work with an executive architect from that town or even out of the country, then it's even more important. So that's one way where we can remain at a intimate scale of practice and yet be doing more work than that size practice could do alone. So when you grow your practice and uh, hire, what are the most important characteristics that you look for hmm. in, in new talent? So that's funny you ask, because this is something we're talking about on the way over here. I think, you know, when you post an ad, you list all the qualifications you're looking for, but it's rarely about that. You really try to find the best people and that that seems really vague. Maybe I should say the best fit because, you know, we're small practice or small-ish practice and we do value knowing each other and operating as a collective that's like a family. So it has to be the right cultural fit. Um, We have to know that we can communicate well with the person and they have to sort of embrace the ethos of the firm because if not, then their work as part of the larger work, even as just being part of a team, would not ring true. And, um, you know, that just wouldn't cut it for us. We also part-time teach at USC and every so often we'll hire the best student and that has worked out as well. It's another way of, you know, knowing people. And then we have actually a very vibrant and uh, robust intern program. So we're actually recent graduates come and work for us for six months, and then we get to know them pretty well. And I don't know what we hire, maybe 30% of our interns. Uh, Yeah, that sounds about right. About right, something like that. But I think we also have, and this is 
Well, I've heard around town that we have a good reputation for having a good office culture. So that does draw a lot of interest. Like I get a lot of resumes from whether it's people from out of town that have friends in town. So we're on a very short list of firms they're interested in, or, you know, they might be working at another firm and they just hear about the experience working for us. And so that's a draw. I mean, that's important to have a a vibrant, rich, kind of supportive culture in an office. And if I can just add to that, as the founder of the firm that now goes back quite a while, 35 years, um, of course, the work is always the most important thing. Design excellence is our primary motivator. But I have to say in the last decade in particular, the firm culture has really gelled and really coalesced into something that I personally am very proud of. And it's one of the creative phenomenons that has happened in our practice that that it's how people are working together, how there are multiple voices, how we challenge each other, how we go on this journey together, and that we don't have a set formal end result where we are trying to get to. Absolutely the opposite. We want the project to evolve from all of the input. We want to be open to that. And um, so that firm culture is something that I'm personally very excited and proud of. And probably 20 years ago, couldn't have even seen if it was right in front of me. So how do you coordinate the firm culture with the teaching culture? You're both involved with like the insane um, (laughs) pressures that come with being a a student in a studio environment. And how do you, you know, tell them, first of all, okay, get better um, when you actually get into practice, but also how do you keep those two in coordination? Well, we're not always teaching. So yeah, that, that's we do it intermittently because we think it's important to stay involved in academics and stay in touch with with that community or that portion of of architecture. But it, it's hard, you know. I think what what we bring to the table when we do teach is the perspective of a practitioner. So, I mean, that's really important for us that we build our projects. You know, we're not paper architects. I think there's a place in the world for all kinds of architects, but that's not who we are. So, when we teach studio, it is a little bit about the realities of practice. And that's not to say we don't care about design. Obviously we do. We care about design at the highest level, but we also have, you know, war stories or whatever, these kind of tales of our experience in actually practicing architecture. And so we try to fold that into our teaching. Some people I've heard criticize the distinction between academia and the practice of architecture as being architects that are wholly engaged in both aspects of the industry, what do you think about that transition from school to architecture? Does school these days provide a, an experience that can easily transition into practice? Or is there a, an experience that people need to go through to kind of make that transition? Uh, I think schools are actually more conscious of trying to prepare students for the real world. You know, so I don't know if that's just today, if it's just economic reality. We're in a good economy right now. So I think students are tending to go out into the workforce and work. But that may shift back. And um, at the same time, I think there are people in academics that are, are less interested in, in practice or more interested in research. And I think there's a valuable place for that. I think architecture needs all these different voices. So it's not for me to kind of say which which route is better. I know which route we took or I took and which route I'm better able to kind of coach a young architect 
in following, but um, I couldn't make a value judgment. I mean, I, I have, we have peers in academia that are doing amazing, amazing research work. And sometimes I envy what they're able to do, you know, outside the construct of, of real practice. Yeah. You know? I think yeah. some students and faculty are also, you know, they're interested in creating digital worlds that actually could have relevance in industries like gaming and creating truly virtual architecture. Um, again, it's not the path we took, but it doesn't mean that it isn't a valid path. Mm -hmm. Takashi, could you just briefly talk about the path that you took? Um, where did you go to school and what was your path that led you to um, Stephen Ehrlich's office? It was slightly meandering. So my choice was art school or university, and I chose the university route. It was slightly more conservative, but very early on, I had a professor, Lars Larrap. This was at UC Berkeley. And he was holding court one day in a cafe, and he told all of us that we should drop out of architecture school immediately because we were too young to dedicate our lives to architecture. And we should study everything, all aspects of humanity. And, and I was young and naive enough to follow his advice. So I dropped out of architecture school immediately and studied everything from philosophy to history to art history and eventually got my degree in literature all the while knowing I would go back to architecture school. Did you uh, think that advice was good advice? I think it was excellent advice. So you don't regret uh, I do not that. regret it at all. And mm -hmm. so I, I definitely have a soft spot for those who've taken these meandering paths because I think, you know, we're building for people and we're best qualified for to build for people when we have deep and broad experiences ourselves as architects, especially as young architects. So anyway, I'll try to keep this short, but I, I spent four years in Japan. I was lucky enough to kind of leverage my background in literature into an editing position at GA, which is a, a prominent um, bilingual Japanese and English architecture magazine. So I was on the editing staff there for four years, and then I went back to grad school and finally uh, got my degree in architecture. So that was, that was my route. From uh, the GSD? Yes, I went to Harvard to the GSD. And I should mention when I was at GA, that was an amazing experience as well, because back in those days, and maybe still today, every architect of note who came to Japan would pass through our offices and, and gallery. So, you know, I was just an intern back then, but I met everyone from, you know, Philip Johnson to Peter Eisenman to, you know, and I would have to stand by, stand next to Tadao Ando as he autographed 500 copies of his monograph and it was quite an, an experience. And then did you practice anywhere before joining? I practiced at a couple places, but very early on, I knew of Stephen's work actually through GA because the houses would get published in GA houses quite frequently. And at the same time, he was looking for someone to join uh, the residential practice. And he had heard about me through a professor of mine who uh, he had recently become friends with, which was Marion Thompson. Mary, yeah, at Harvard. And yeah. so that was kind of, sometimes that's how you find people through the network of who you know. And, and it worked out. She gave Takashi a very strong recommendation and now we're partners. Yeah. So it there all worked you, out. There you have it. So we have to thank Marianne <laughs> Thompson <laughs> yeah. publicly. So Takashi, maybe you could explain a little bit your specific role as the residential principal? So we have a very broad practice. Maybe it's a third residential. We do commercial work and higher ed work and institutional work. But my corner of our world is, is the residential studio. So I basically oversee our staff that works on the houses. Uh, and we'll have anywhere from maybe three to eight houses in the studio at any one time. 
Um, so basically, Stephen and I collaborate on the residential projects and we'll involve um, one senior architect as well. So it's a team of three. But uh, that personally is my passion. My, my first project out of school was actually a museum and that was great and I loved it. But uh, very early on, I just fell in love with the immediacy of the houses. So I loved working with the clients, that level of detail and that level of connection between a user that I got to know personally versus like uh, for some people, it's the broader idea of the public, which I completely respect. But for me, there was something magical about getting to know a client and becoming very good friends with a client and then providing this atmosphere, this environment that sort of amplified everything that was great in their lives in a way that they couldn't foresee when they hired an architect. That's kind of a magical experience for me. So, You know, one thing that I'd like to point out is that the fact that we do have a diverse project type portfolio going on in our office, they actually nourish each other. So the fact that we're doing houses and looking at details and materials uh, in a certain way can influence how we're doing, a, let's say, a civic or academic project and vice versa. So there is a dialogue that happens or a cross-fertilization of learning that I think is occurring because of this project diversity. So what are some of the projects that you're working on right now? Well, one of them that is real exciting for us as we're working on uh, actually our first hotel project on Sunset Boulevard. It, what part of Sunset? Right in West Hollywood. And we're not supposed to say exactly where, but mm -hmm. people can figure it out. <laughs> and so it's actually a hotel and uh, adjacent condominium project. And it's, it's, we're bringing a lot of the diversity of our project strength into this one project from residential single family homes and how they affect the design of the, the intimacy of the condominium project, and yet we're able to put together uh, a team that can really handle a large-scale complex project, which it is. So before we wrap up, uh, I was hoping that maybe you could provide some insight into something I've been curious about ever since I moved to L.A. I, coming from growing up outside of L.A., since I've been here, I've, I've wondered why people in Southern California don't integrate outdoor living more into their into their residential architecture. Why do you think that is? I mean, are there certain constraints either financially or? I think the constraint is only uh, a limit of the imagination. So I'll give you two examples. If you look at so many post-war houses that were built, let's say in the 50s, thereabouts, 50s, 60s, for whatever reason, uh, those people built houses where the backyard was completely cut off from indoor space. There might be little windows or the utility laundry room connecting to the backyard to hang up your laundry. Who knows why? But the flip side of the coin is we, not that long ago, designed in 1938, modest 980 square foot house by Rudolf Schindler. And that guy got it. I mm -hmm. mean, it was all about how the indoor space connects to the outdoor space. So I would just suggest if it would just be a lack of uh, of the imagination that that has occurred. There's no reason why we shouldn't take advantage of, of that potential. Well, I, I noticed in uh, the photographs I've seen of your own house, it's it's almost impossible to see where the, the interior and the exterior start and end. It's a very seamless transition. Yeah. Thank you for noticing. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming in today. It was great talking to you guys. Yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Yeah, it's good. Appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely. So we're back from our conversation with Stephen Ehrlich. What do you think about that, guys? 
I thought it was quite pleasant, actually. You know, to see some of his work and to see that there's a there's a passion, but not that the ego is in the work, but it's not demonstrated in their persona. It's really quite comforting to see that there's actually architects who are actually doing it for the sake of architecture, not for stroking their own egos or not to have their egos stroked by other people. Yeah, it's funny you mention that because that's one of the things that I was left with was that there was very little ego coming from them. I, I feel like their work is very humble and honest. It was a refreshing conversation, I thought. But, you know, you would look at the work and it's it's beautiful. So much of it is so beautiful and so finely tuned that you would think, okay, this is some kind of control freak, yeah, egotist that creating this, but not at all. I mean, I think it's just a very, yeah, as you said, Paul, refreshing and clean and really lovely and simple approach to solving these problems. Yeah. And I mean, their work is really, really stunning too. We are going to be posting images of the, of the work, some of the projects that we mentioned, including his own house, which is just a really beautiful example of how, you know, Southern California weather lends itself to indoor outdoor living. You just, I, I think they, they nailed it with that project. But they, they do a great job in all of their work in, in that respect. Yeah, the sheer scope of their projects was something that also really amazed me while also maintaining that groundedness and having them in studio. You could really feel that they were just like really down to earth and it still had this incredible scope of like institutional and residential and large and small scale projects in their portfolio. You know, one of the things that I thought was quite lovely and to hear him say it just reminds me of what I remember from school was their points about multicultural modernism. Is that what is that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's their term. Mm -hmm. It's a bit of a mouthful so it doesn't roll off the tongue very easily. But when they talked about working with clients and dealing with their own unique capacities and their own idiosyncrasies and to be able to work on that level, it's easily said, but I think the complexity in actually doing that kind of work is is really where a lot of us struggle because I think for the most part, we have clients that have needs and wants and all these things, but they don't really spend a lot of time reflecting on who they are as individuals to make their spaces or their buildings or their projects really unique to them. And that's primarily, I think, when we're talking about, you know, all the different types of architects that are out there and the Garys in the world and the others, like Stephen Hall, that's where I think you see the difference between those kinds of architects, where you see the one is really about kind of an ego-driven practice and you see um, others like the uh, Stephen Ehrlich and his partner um, and Stephen Hall to a great extent as well. They just really drill down on finding what's unique about the site, what's unique about the client, what's unique about the program and figure out a way to collectively, you know, make that project sing in a way that I think other projects get lost. You know, there's been in the news in the last few weeks, all these uh, competing articles about how architects are all just egotists and that's, you know, that we're all just out to work and, and feed our own egos. And what I keep responding to these people on Twitter and it, it's elsewhere is, there are so many architects that are not about that and that are doing this beautiful work that makes their clients happy. And it's just not getting the press. You know, I, Stephen Ehrlich's name is probably one that a lot of our listeners don't know very well, especially on the East Coast. They probably don't know his name. So these are the architects' architects, as far as I'm concerned. These are not the star architects. These are people that are doing amazing work and it's it's making their communities better and it's making the place they live better and it's making their clients happy. Yeah. Well, the public tends to respond better to projects that everybody can relate to as opposed to, you know, uh, projects like Ehrlich's office creates that are so specific to the client. There's a lot of meaning to that work at a more personal level. Yeah, for me, there's there's always been this sense. I've always said this about Tadeo Ando's work is that I so appreciate his work, but I don't find that that I am quite adult enough to do something that quiet. 
And, <laughs> That's a great phrase. And I look at this and I hear them talking and I go, I wish I was, because you could almost see yourself asking them the question, what do you think about Gary? What do you think about him flipping off people? And you could almost just see them very kind of um, in a Tai Chi sort of way, just kind of wiping that aside and just kind of getting back to what it is they do. They're so not into being critical. And that, that, that's my impression. I don't know that to be true or not, but it just was left with the sense that they do what they do. They're focused on doing what they're doing. Gary and et al. do what they do. And each one is successful on their own terms. And if Gary's successful that way, then that's fine for them. But they're just going to continue being the architects that they are. And, you know, when he said in the interview, which I thought was really nice, I always saw myself as a firm of three people and like they almost struggled to not get big just because they didn't want that mm. baggage that comes with being a larger firm and somehow they've gotten larger as a firm. Yeah. They've gotten these increasingly larger projects, but they maintain the simplicity of a three person kind of mindset where it's just very simple. And, and you hope to have that kind of quiet inside and get to that place. But it, it's, again, it's easier said than the complexities will allow you to have it. <laughs> very true. Very true. Well, should we move on to Brian? Our legal correspondent. Bring him on. Yeah. All right. Well, this week I spoke with him about contracts and uh, judging by a lot of the threads that I've been seeing in the discussion forum, this is a topic that we all need to be paying attention to. Very important. So uh, let's go ahead. Listen to that conversation. So I'm here with Brian Newman, our legal correspondent. Brian, how's it going? It's going well. Great to be back. Good to have you back. So this week we're going to talk about contracts. All right. What are the typical kind of contracts that architects deal with? Probably the two most uh, common types of contracts an architect may deal with is uh, an employment contract when an architect is hiring either an employee or an independent contractor uh, to work on a project, or uh, of course, uh, a project-based contract when an architect is entering into a contract with a client to design a building, either a residential client or a commercial project. So those, those are the two areas where an architect uh, most commonly would be in need of a contract. So what typical items are included in a contract and who would typically draft a contract? Typically, to address your first question first, the most important thing in a contract is, is clarity and certainty. So we need to answer all the following questions. Who are the parties to the contract? And by that, I mean, are we contracting uh, with an individual? Are we contracting with an LLC, with a corporation? So there's a difference, for example, if you're entering into a contract uh, with me individually, Brian Newman, versus I may have a limited liability company, Brian Newman, LLC. So you want to address it at the outset. Who are the parties who are contracting? So that's, that's the first question. Second question is, uh, what are they contracting for? Well, what exactly is being done? What services is the architect going to provide? Uh, if it's a project-based contract, what is the architect hiring an employee for, an independent contract for, uh, if, it's a, if it's an employment contract? Uh, and then, of course, the issue of payment. What is the architect going to be paid uh, for these services? Uh, when is payment going to be due? And, and how is payment going to be tendered? It's going to be via check, via wire transfer, and of course, uh, questions about uh, in the event that a dispute arises, how is that dispute going to be resolved? So th those are the key things. Uh, and answered your second question, uh, how is a contract or who is responsible for drafting a contract? Typically what happens uh, from my point of view is my clients will, will come to me uh, with sort of a skeleton deal sheet or term sheet. Here's the deal that we've agreed to. Uh, here's the timing of it. Here's the, the work we're going to perform. Here's the price we're going to pay. And then they turn it over to me and I actually draft the contract. But, but from the client's point of view, what I'm looking for is really the uh, sort of the, the heart of the deal. What are the key terms? And of course, I'm going to ask questions too, just to avoid any ambiguities and make sure that, that we're all on the same page and try to eliminate any possible uh, areas of dispute in the future. 
So ideally, you have a lawyer to help draft a contract. But if the cost of a project doesn't have the budget to afford a, a lawyer, what are the options for someone who needs to draft up a contract on their own? Well, it's pretty straightforward. In order to have an enforceable contract, first of all, in California, you can have a oral contract. I don't recommend that. I think it's something that's setting yourself up for litigation in the future. And if there is litigation, that's going to be your word against theirs. So an oral contract, while technically enforceable, is not a great idea. But to, to come up with an enforceable written contract, it's actually very straightforward. Just write it on a piece of paper, say who the parties are, uh, say exactly what's being agreed to, uh, say when payment's going to be due. Simple as that. And again, it's not a perfect contract, but at least it's something. And then, of course, sign it, have the other person sign it, and you have an enforceable contract. And of course, if you hire an attorney, it's going to be more detailed. It's going to have uh, more points in it. It's going to have more bells and whistles. But a real skeleton contract, which which I have litigated before and has been held many times to be enforceable, simply has, you know, who are the parties? What are the terms? What's being done? What's being paid? When's it going to be paid, signed, and you're done? And that's something you, you could do on your own, although depending on the, the value and complexity of the project, it may not be a good idea to do that on your own. If a contract was not drafted prior to the beginning of a project and problems arose, would emails or text messages, voicemails suffice in, in lieu of a contract if a dispute needs to be resolved? Well, it's, it's a good question, something uh, we see very often. And the answer is if there's no contract, at least no written contract, then it's going to be one person's word uh, against the other person's word. And emails, uh, text messages, those types of things are very useful in order to put the question or put the situation back together as to exactly what the agreement was. And we see that in litigation from time to time. There's, there's no written contract. So all we have is emails, text messages with negotiations back and forth. And this is something that, that may eventually be presented to a judge or a jury or, or to an arbitrator in terms of uh, trying to prove your side of what was agreed to. So the short answer is the more you have in writing, the better. You know, uh, but if it's just a train of emails, you know, that itself is probably not going to be a contract unless certain formalities are observed. But if that's all you have, at least it's something. It's, it's better than simply your recollection. So I'd say put, put as much in writing as possible, and preferably have the actual contract in writing. So what are some of the lesser known important items to include in a contract that our listeners may not be familiar with? Well, a few things I always recommend. Number one, a, a venue clause. And what that means is in the event that there's a dispute, it answers the question, where is this dispute going to be resolved? Now, you and I are both in Los Angeles. We had a contract. There was a lawsuit about that contract. Pretty straightforward. File that lawsuit here in Los Angeles. But let's say, for example, you're in Los Angeles and I'm in New York or even worse, I'm in London or I'm in Dubai. Well, then where is the lawsuit going to be? And from my point of view, if I'm the architect, the last thing I want to do is have to litigate on, on your home turf in another state or in another country. So if I'm drafting the contract, I'm going to put in a clause that says, in the event a dispute arises, any dispute will be resolved in state or federal court or in arbitration if we agree to that, in and insert where I live or where I want the dispute to be resolved. Los Angeles and California, you can be as specific as you want, but it's definitely better than leaving it up to chance in the event that the other part of the contract sues you and you have to travel all the way across the country or possibly all the way across the world. That's definitely a good idea, a venue clause. A number two, uh, an attorney's fees clause, often a good idea. And what that says is, if we get into a dispute, dispute ends up in, in litigation, the prevailing party, which means the person who wins the lawsuit, gets to recover their attorney's fees from the losing party. So what does that do? It incentivizes both parties to act reasonably and not get into frivolous disputes, and in particular, not to file a frivolous lawsuit, because it's already set forth that if we get into this lawsuit, that the losing party is paying the winning party's attorney's fees. And that often is, is a big deal because the fees can often be a substantial portion of or even greater than the amount of money of the contract. Uh, number three, another good idea would be an arbitration clause. That's something if you want to avoid 
uh, being in court, either because you want the privacy of arbitration, uh, you don't want the uncertainty of having uh, your case decided by 12 people from the community, from a jury, you'd rather have an expert arbitrator. So uh, in all 50 states, uh, an arbitration clause is going to be enforceable, something that you negotiate for. And you can say, uh, you know, in the event there's a dispute, the dispute will be resolved in arbitration. And you can combine that with the venue clause and with an attorney's fees clause. So often the clause will say, if we have a dispute, we're going to resolve the dispute in arbitration in Los Angeles, and the prevailing party uh, will recover attorney's fees from the losing party. So you can put all those bells and whistles. Obviously, they may not be right for every contract, but something to think about. Are contracts typically negotiable? Always. They're always. always negotiable. And in fact, it's, I mean, the, the point of the contract is that you want to negotiate. The question is, well, when is the negotiation going to happen? And ideally, the negotiation happens before you enter into the contract. So I always encourage my clients, you know, really hammer out all of the deal points before we put pen to paper and really draft the contract. We want to avoid ambiguity if you can. So answer these questions and think proactively. You know, what, what if only part of the project is completed? What if I'm not happy with the plans, for example, the architect gives me? What happens then? And these are questions that may be a little bit uncomfortable to talk about at the beginning, but the alternative is, is perhaps even more uncomfortable, which is getting to a point where you present me something uh, which, which is not what I expected, and then you want payment, and I don't want to pay you, and that obviously makes you uncomfortable, makes me uncomfortable. So, you know, most deals, probably 90%, 95% work out just fine. So it's, it's not a situation where you know, most contracts are going to end up in litigation. This is really being proactive, number one, for those deals that do end up in litigation. And number two, just as, as, as a business proposition, we're better off uh, hammering it all out ahead of time rather than sort of leaving too many things to chance and hoping it all works itself out after the work has begun. Well, I think that you provided a really good uh, overview of the contract situation in uh, for, for architects and, and uh, professionals in general. Uh, if there's any questions from our uh, listeners, send them over to us at connect at rconnect.com via email, or you can give us a call or include the hashtag rconnect sessions on Twitter. And Brian will uh, be available to answer any additional questions about contracts that you guys might have. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot, Brian. All right. Thanks, Paul. Talk to you next week. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. We're back. What do you guys think about that? Contracts. It was, uh, it was a really good talk. And I think a lot of architects are terrified of contracts. When I taught pro practice, I had my students write a letter contract, just basically a letter contract, which you're not supposed to do, but a lot of architects do anyway, just to make sure that they understood the sort of basics of making agreements official with someone. But I also then also had to teach the AIA contracts. And I just wanted to put in a little plug for the AIA contracts. They really are an incredibly well-crafted set of documents. And they're not only available to AIA members. Anyone can buy them. I have had contractors who had a contract with the homeowner and brought me in as a designer, I've had them bring AIA contracts to the table because the contract owner agreement is just so well written. And the contracts are really manipulable. You can change things in them. You can add things and strike things. So they're not just stock versions. And they pretty much cover everything. So if you feel like they're too long, you can strike a bunch of it out if you just feel like it won't be applicable to your project. But they're really well-crafted documents. And at this point, having gone under a pretty major change in the last five or six years, I think, they're a really good set of documents. So I would encourage people to look at those. If you're starting out and you have a, a small project and it's your first project, AIA document has, they have a like a three-page contract for projects of simple scope or something like that. So yeah, I would encourage people to check those out. And where can our listeners go? Go check those out. 
Well, your local AIA office will have access to them, but the AIA national website online also has them and you can just buy them as individual documents. It's like 20 bucks for the most simple one or something. So they're not super expensive either. Now, if you're a thousand person firm and you're buying, you know, contracts every day, then you have to sign up for a license for those AIA contracts. And that gives you access to as many of them as you need. But for the regular small practitioner like me or like my contractor friends, you can buy them for 20 bucks and there you've got a perfect contract ready to go. Yeah. That seems like money well spent considering the uh, <laughs> problems that could arise without. And I, I, I'm uh, going back to what you said about these contracts being really thorough and you know yeah. kind of templates. I heartily recommend that people spend a lot of time with these contracts, studying them and making them unique to their own need because these contract templates often include a lot of content that is not important to, you know, certain projects and is also lacking some details that might be especially important to, right. to the project you're working on. Yeah, I think this is a really important topic to just kind of push into the forefront because regardless of what type of firm you work for, or what type of work you do or what your tax status is, just having the wherewithal to advocate for yourself and having this ability to write contracts and and have that um, arbitration being done at the very beginning of a relationship, a working relationship, whether you're the client or the person doing the work is incredibly important. And I think just personally speaking, a lot of the architects that I know around recent graduates or so aren't so much working with, they're working on a far more like case by case basis. So they're really open to getting taken advantage of if they don't have their their stuff together. They really have to stay on their toes and make sure that you know, that guy that promised them that work for this pay that week <laughs> actually uh, sticks to it. So I think it's just a strong thing to empower yourself with, of like getting to know what your rights are and how to graft these things is incredibly important. I also liked what Brian said about, Paul, you asked the question about emails and texts and things like that. And when we were discussing contracts earlier, Ken mentioned that frequently you will add a supplemental conditions letter. So you'll have the contract and it will also reference this little supplemental letter. You could print out emails and say, you know, this is the initial email and this agreement via email is now incorporated into our contract. Print it out, add it to the back as an addenda A, and you got it. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's an important point to bring up. And it's not just email either. I mean, it, that also applies to text messages, chats, Facebook discussions, yeah. any type of private correspondence that can be documented. Yep. Voicemails. <laughs> if you still do yeah. that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Instead of texting, really? <laughs> Carrier pigeon messages. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. So yeah, good talk. So, and Brian will be back again more. For... Yeah. Next week, we'll be talking about issues of copyright and architecture. Ooh, yeah. Look Something that's that. popped up a lot in the forum. And, you know, I really want to uh, ask our listeners to send us ideas for Brian to address regarding legal issues. I know that there's a lot of people out there with a lot of questions. You know, we have a lawyer, send them to us. <laughs> That's right. So I'm going to go ahead and drop here that I thought we should refer to Brian as gravity because he's the law to which architects have to obey. <laughs> So I think our nickname for him could be Brian, a.k.a. Gravity. But that hasn't gone over well so far. So if anyone wants to call in and leave us a message, you can just say, hey, Gravity, tell me about this. <laughs> and maybe the nickname will take off. We could start animating him as kind of a Schoolhouse Rock style uh, character. <laughs> That'd be great. That'd be great. Schoolhouse Rock. That would actually get through to architects, I think, if we could watch a little cartoon of, uh, of legal, legal issues. Yeah. yeah, totally. So... In the news. What's been going on in the news this week, Camelia? This week, or the last week also, was actually a pretty big announcement week. If you follow the Olympic news, we had a recent announcement that in the bid for the 2024 Summer Games, um, the United States chose Boston as its bid. 
So this doesn't mean that Boston is host in the 2024 Olympics, but it does mean that it's in the running for it. And it means that the other competing U.S. cities, San Francisco, Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., are no longer in the running. I personally was mourning L.A. 2024. L.A. is the obvious choice. We already hosted an, an awesome Summer Olympics. Weather's great. We will have all of our driverless cars in action by 2024. <laughs> so it'll be fantastic. But yeah, I think Boston was an interesting choice. Um, I haven't personally been to Boston since beginning of the of the aughts. So I'm not, and I have no real memory of it. So I can't really say exactly like what it might've felt like to host an Olympics there. But I don't know, does anyone have any uh, strong feelings about this choice as the as Boston for our for our official bid? I think it's wicked exciting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the, those every single really every <laughs> single news piece I've read about this is just like finds a way to use wicked in it. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, I haven't been paying attention. Oh, yeah. Oops. I missed that joke. <laughs> if it does anything, it'll give uh, Frank Gehry maybe another chance to fix his MIT strata building, so maybe he can add on to that <laughs> and turn it into burn. something. No, I, <laughs> that's just a little zinger. You know, I, I can't quite comprehend how they do it in Boston. I've been to Boston a few times and you can't get around that. I mean, what are they going to do? Transport the Olympians via the ducks up and down the Charles River? I don't understand <laughs> how they plan on getting around that town. It's like impossible. It's not like impossible. It is impossible. <laughs> <laughs> well, it seems like the biggest backlash. There's an organization, I forget what what they've called themselves, but that people are kind of protesting this bid because they're fearing that it's going to end up costing too much money. Uh, the taxpayers are going to have to cover too much of a cost to to get the city ready for it. Yeah, which is pretty much every anti-Olympics hostings person's uh, argument, which is after recent years, especially, um, we've seen some pretty awful Sochi and obviously in Athens and all that, and even in China as well. It's like it really is becoming harder and harder for the the bid for the Olympics to pay off for a city economically. The organization that doesn't want the Olympics is called No Boston Olympics. So they're, <laughs> yeah, and they're to the point. <laughs> very straight to the point. Um, Quick, what do we name our organization? <laughs> Nobo. <laughs> Nobo, exactly. Rolls off the tongue. But I think also the, that the committee has in Boston has tried to anticipate these concerns by in a kind of depressing response, they're saying, oh, well, we can, you know, we'll offset costs of building, uh, what's it called, where they house the Olympiads or the Olympians, Olympic cities, and to just say like, yeah, we'll put them in old dorms during the summer. No one's going to be there. We can use a lot of university housing, university buildings. So I think they do have some plans for how they'll, they'll kind of take advantage of existing infrastructure. But yeah, the biggest criticisms I've heard is just exactly what you said, Ken, was like, it's just really hard to get around. And it's... A lot of the criticism is also based around how Boston has this bigger idea of its actual scope as a city than it physically is. So it might just be a, a difficult just like people management problem. Well, I guess we'll have to see. It's it's also not likely or we'll have to see exactly who it's up against in the international field, like who, what other cities are going in for the final bid. And then we can have a real duke it out, wicked awesome <laughs> I don't even know. I just had to get Wicked in there. Which Boston will win, right? I was listening this morning, the NPR sports commentator, Frank DeFord, whose commentary I like very much, said that um, he wonders why any city would want to host the Olympics because it's supposed to give lots of name recognition to your city. But he said it's basically like getting name rec recognition for hosting an epidemic, <laughs> which I thought was hilarious. Yeah. Some truth to that. Yeah. Yeah. You look at some of the cities that have come out of it and it was not good for them. So, I, I you know, I don't know much about Olympics. I don't follow sports much, but... Um. Well, the Olympics brought palm trees to LA. What, really? Is that true? Yes. The 1920 
Yeah, when was that first Los Angeles Olympics? Well, it was like a public works effort, right? Yeah, I mean, they that's uh, palm trees aren't native to Los Angeles, so that was the that was the beginning <laughs> of palm trees in in the city. I never knew that. Thirty two Olympic Games, yeah, nineteen thirty two. So in Phoenix, where I grew up, we always blamed California for bringing palm trees to Phoenix because yeah. Phoenix, they're not native to Phoenix either. So now I can say, okay, but it was actually... Blame the Olympics. It's the Olympics' fault. Okay, great. One more thing to lay on sports. That's fine with me. <laughs> sports can take it. Sports can take it. That's right. Sports is tough. The other thing I heard too, and it's probably, again, the devil's in the details when it comes to these things, is that there's a, a thinking that the universities would be the ones footing the bill for the building of the athletic facilities. You know, the problem with that is that everybody knows that there's going to be these signature architects and these buildings are going to be signature buildings. And, you know, does anyone want to take on that burden that hasn't really hasn't done so well in the past? And, and that region has, again, has particular issues with some architects and leaking. And so it's just I'm never understanding of this particular issue, why people will actually go for this anymore. It seems like a way of backdooring in your infrastructural improvements with some sort of, you know, intangible benefit to the state or to the city around, oh, look at what it's going to bring. It's going to bring all these people. It's going to bring recognition. It's going to bring money. But it doesn't seem like that really is a reason <laughs> to do this work. Yeah. I wonder if there are any studies that we can look at that show the positive effects of cities hosting the Olympics in recent decades. Yeah, I think a lot of the more recent research has been how negative <laughs> the effects yeah. have been or how, is it Montreal that is still paying off its building for a large infrastructural project for their Olympics in like... Wow, in the 60s. In the 60s, yeah, or something wow. insane. 76. Really, 76? I think oh, it was. It's just incredibly depressing. <laughs> so yeah, maybe maybe Los Angeles did indeed dodge a bullet. I kind of was also curious about what a San Francisco Olympics would look like, but maybe another Summer Olympics time will come. But another large announcement that was made this week or last week was um, from the AIA National Convention announcing one of their keynote speakers. This year in 2015, it will be Bill Clinton. Woo! <laughs> Which Donna is totally stoked about. Is that, is that an architect? <laughs> he hires good architects. <laughs> oh, okay. So that's what's more important, in fact. He's a, he's a good client. Yeah. But so usually the AIA National Convention has a host of keynote speakers that are also including actual architects, but along with uh, other culturally significant or politically significant figures. Um, last year was Pharrell Williams, along with Easter Gates and Gene Gang. But as of now, it's really only been announced that Bill Clinton will be there. So I'm kind of still waiting to see how they mix that up or if they pair some people with Clinton to see um, what kind of barometer they're trying to set on the type of speakers they're having, because it seemed a little bit of a, I don't know, it seemed a little left field for me. Well, don't forget, they have to do all of the vetting of those and getting security clearances for all any potential invitees to the speakers. So to speak at the conference because, you know, he's a former president. Mm. <laughs> I'm kidding. So if you find, so Ken, are you suggesting that if we find any like architect that previously made like disgruntled comments against the president, they're like, ah, nah. <laughs> yeah, they'll, yeah, they'll shit can that idea. <laughs> Clinton might've used up all of their budget too. Cause I know that he's a pretty expensive guest to have. I think he gets something in the neighborhood of like $250,000 and I might be overly exaggerating, but it sounds like they get wow. a pretty hefty wallet of cash. So, well, he does have to fund Hillary's presidential campaign. Exactly. That's important. <laughs> yeah. Which is what everyone's complaining that this is the only reason he's doing it. Right. To, to, which is just not true. I mean, no. the global Clinton initiative, what's it called? Shoot. The Clinton global initiatives. That's totally relates to what architects do. 
I'm excited to see him because I've never seen him live. And I'm I'm real curious about this whole Clinton charisma. And he's a smart dude. I mean, he's very intelligent and he's a great speaker. So I'm just, I'm fired up about it. I think it'll be awesome. Also, I am on the roster, by the way, of the AIA National Convention this year. I'm not a keynote speaker, but I'm giving a talk. So hey, nice. what are you talking about? So have I not announced this? I feel like I have. I never can keep track. I The talk that I gave at the AIA Regional Convention last fall has been accepted for the AIA National. So I'll be giving the same talk, but updated because it's very much about sort of contemporary urban design things and, and city things. So I'm going to update it. I'm going to add Mitch McEwen to it because she's doing exactly the kind of work that I focused on. So, so yeah, I will be there. Wow. I'll be giving a talk right next to Bill. Great. That is great. Not really. Very exciting. I don't think you did mention that. Maybe I didn't. Yeah. I put it on Thread Central. <laughs> Can I throw a chin-high fastball for the uh, the commenters who've been poo-pooing this idea? Yes, please. Um no, and it's not more. It's not about Clinton because I think Don is right. I mean, he brings a lot of a lot of cachet to the event, and he speaks to broader global initiatives that an architects like um, Habitat for Humanity and um, well, the other organization. Uh, I'm to, my name, the name is escaping me for the moment, but the AIA. <laughs> look, the AIA has done a horrible job at times of letting people speak at these conventions. And I'll give you a for instance. And I was at the San Francisco one and it was great. And I had just gotten laid off at this one firm in, in uh, Minnesota. And I was there and I was, I saw a lot of different talks and learned a lot. But then I happened on this one room and it just blew my mind that the AIA would allow these, these horrendous people to come to their event and speak. And it's the 9-11 guy <gasps> for truth. The 9-11 truthers. Oh. 9-11 truther architect. Wow. That jerkwad oh. from San Francisco was there. Who vetted that? Yeah, seriously. And, and I was furious. I could not believe it. I really wanted to stay and just shout this guy off the podium because I'm <laughs> so... And I've been to events and he's not, he was supposed to show up here in the Twin Cities and he's not because I've been ready for him. Every time they show a film here, <laughs> I go to the film. I go to the film. And it's repugnant that this weak ass organization can't figure out a way to stop saying, well, he's a dues paying member. You know what? I don't give a rat's patoo if he's a dues paying <laughs> member. This is ridiculous. This is this nonsensical conspiracy theorist BS, you know, why doesn't anybody on Arconnect on the forums rail against that stupidity? I mean, they're railing against someone who actually has, you know, put the politics aside. He's actually doing something good for not just the country, but for Haiti, for other impoverished countries. And, you know, this this kind of nitpicking around the edges about his character, I'm, he's not president. He's not running for president. And I, you know, it's just it's irritating that the AIA allows this other group to speak at their national events. I don't know if they still do, but they were there in 2009. And, you know, I think if people want to talk about something, they should talk about stuff like that, that just it's really troubling. Well, I think people do have a hard time putting politics aside. Definitely. You know, even though he's he's not the president anymore, he's not talking about politics, you know, he does bring his political brand with him that I think uh, have, you know, a lot of people have a hard time looking beyond that. You're right. And I think part of my criticism of the AIA has always been is they have a political action committee. So they're what the political action committee does, it doesn't pick a political side. It picks candidates that they can support to to push initiatives. So it could be Democrat or Republicans. And that's that's fine. I get that. But 
you know, when they don't want to take a stand on simple issues that 95% of the profession would take a stand on, whether it's regarding climate change or whether it's regarding prisons and solitary confinement, because they don't want to offend a certain minor constituency within the profession. I say, screw that. If we lose those people, then fine. We're probably better off for it. We're leaner. We're going to have people actually thinking individuals and just put these other people off to the side and let them start their own organization. There's another professional organization out there for architects. It's ready to accept them as full members. And I think so many times the AIA just rather not stoke a controversy for the fear of actually losing members when, you know, issues around architects designing prisons or supermax prisons or whether or not we believe in climate change as a fundamentally important issue with regard to all of built environment. And the AIA doesn't really want to take a position because they are fearful that they'll offend a particular segment of their constituency who happen to be politically active as well. Or offend a business that might hire us if we take a stand. And and I have to say, I will defend AIA staunchly because I'm a very active member, but I am very disappointed that the AIA was not willing to take a stand against designing, building, or what is it, facilities to be used for torture or against solitary confinement. I think a lot of architects have joined in with the decision not to work on prisons, and I think that's great. And I can't remember what the group is called now, the Architects and Designers for Social Responsibility, I think, who's a calling for boycotting design of prisons. I'm very disappointed that the AIA has not been willing to take a more firm stand on these kinds of things, and I think that we should. What do you think has made them avoid that? It's a big money. It's money. It's entirely about not offending potential clients, as, as I see it. Mm. It's, you know, we don't want to turn down jobs, basically. We don't want to turn down contracts to build something. And I disagree with that. And I've said from the beginning that uh, ethically, you have a responsibility not only to your client, but to your community and designing things that are terrible for the community. That's that's reneging on your ethical responsibility. So um, until, I mean, ADSP, is that what they're called? Their stand is that until prisons become places that actually do rehabilitation and do work to benefit the prisoners and to put them back into society as good, productive members of society, that we should not be helping to design those systems. Because currently the systems, and I, in my own personal experience with it, it's absolutely true, the systems are not designed to help anyone except the contractors who run them. So it is disappointing to me that AIA is not more willing. Now, on the other hand, AIA has been doing legislature for things like um, tax credits for the AIA PAC, tax credits for historic renovation, that kind of thing, limiting the number of bidders on large federal projects to after an initial, so that they're not just totally lowballing every bid as far down as they can. The the PAC is also working for the the, re, the credit for um, student loan payments if you go and do uh, work with a community nonprofit organization, that kind of stuff. So the AIA PAC is doing some things that I think, Ken, you would agree with and I would agree with, but I'm very disappointed that they did not take a stand on this torture yeah, I think, issue. I thought they missed an opportunity during the downturn in the economy when housing went bust. And the the large, you know, housing developers like Pulte, Lennar, all these other ones, you know, they could have worked harder, I think. Maybe, and I could be wrong. I may not understand the political and the legal process as well as I should. But it seems to me they could have done a little bit more about how those entities are regulated so that they could actually maybe shifted zoning or codes to kind of prevent these wholesale purchases of large swaths of our country just to drop down these developments that really caused the boom and bust during the the, the the 80s and 90s. But the AIA, I thought, you know, here's an opportunity where this industry is on its knees. Its political power is was down at its lowest. And I thought there's an opportunity where the AIA could have been a stronger advocate for 
making sure that the design professional was brought on board and that a green policy was instituted to save or to kind of manage the resources that were that got us in that place, you know, that the destruction of those resources put us in a position that we're still in today. And I think those industries are coming back even stronger. And I think the opportunity was lost. I agree. I agree. So, you know, I'm moving up in the ranks at AIA. I'll see what I can change from within. I'll, I'll do my best, Ken. I'll bring Rock you in. <laughs> Great. Um, we'll link to the, um, I found the webpage for um, the group that is trying to advocate for these changes, particularly in regards to the prison system, the architects slash designers slash planners for social responsibility. Um, and I believe Ken and Donna, you were referring to a petition that they posed to AIA recently trying to get them yes. to agree to not um, design spaces explicitly intended for torture. And it was time, or at least Ken, you brought this to my attention around the same time that the torture report came out. So it was, seemed like really exactly. ripe timing for change to happen. And it was, I think, disappointing for a lot of people that nothing really came of it. So we'll, we'll keep tabs on it. And hopefully this is something that they keep, Great. They keep harping at. Amelia, since you touched on torture, <laughs> can I head on one more topic before we go? <laughs> sure, go ahead. It's Kareem Rashid. He got spanked. <laughs> Speaking of torture. <laughs> he got spanked. Poor, poor Kareem. My heart goes out to the poor guy. Ken, are you, are you, um, are you allowing yourself to design Schadenfreude uh, or, or architecture at this point? That was a terribly made joke, but I think the point came across. I love that word, though. The word is so beautiful, Schadenfreude. But yeah, I think that's what we can all agree that that's what Kareem is experiencing right now. So, uh, Ken, what, what exactly are you referring to based on that? Well, I think he just got hammered by, um, I don't know the, quite the department in New York City, but he just got hammered by New York City regarding his um, project that he has a permit for in uh, Harlem, um, having to do with um, some zoning issues. I, one of them being building height. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean <laughs> Which really. Which is a hard thing to change after the fact. Really? You know? <laughs> building height. But, it, you know, it's proof that, again, that architecture is easily talked about and so, so complex to actually execute that a dilettante like this asshat, as I, as somebody has pointed <laughs> out on the website today, I love that word and it so fits him because I could just see him wearing one. Um, <laughs> pink, of course, pink. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's poetic justice for the architects that have been kicked around a lot lately that here's a guy who's whose own self-importance got him in a position where he can't, well, I'm sure he'll get himself out, but it's certainly not going to bode well for him to kind of do other things. And to top it all off, every it seems like everyone around that project hates him and the project, <laughs> which is even better. <laughs> we need a shout and Freud a button uh, sound effect. Yeah, we do. We do. What would it's, that be? It's hmm. So glorious. How about like a toilet plunging? <laughs> yeah, that'd be good. Um, yeah. <laughs> nice. I want to. I want to tie this to our uh, to our contract conversation. Actually, strangely, which seems kind of dry at this point, but um, you know, I'm wondering because there was, and he said there is an executive architect on this project, an architect of record who you would think would be the one that ultimately would be responsible if these things don't hit the, the zoning codes. But that is the kind of thing. And I think some architects have probably found themselves in this situation before where if the client is pushing for something that the architect knows is not likely to pass or not likely to sneak past the inspector coming through, that you can, you know, you get it in writing, get it in writing that the client says, I am telling you to do it this way, even though you're telling me the dangers of it. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, let, let's hope that Kareem, his executive architects had a, a clause in their contract that, or, you know, first of all, let's hope that they didn't do this willingly and know that they were violating zoning code. But if they did it because their client Kareem said to, let's hope that they, uh, you know, that they covered their own butts on this. But I think, isn't New York one of those cities where, because they're so large and the bureaucracy is so massive, that you don't walk into a plan office and get a review of your drawings? Yeah. You, you deal with a third them. party, right? Or self-check, right? So you, you I think there's I think they have self-check. Yeah. So you, you know, that kind of ego in that kind of environment, it's due to have this absolute collision. And, you know, because the he figures, I think, with the shine of his the gilded craptastic <laughs> designer that he is, <laughs> that he feels that, that that power can actually be something that overcomes any obstacle. And it's what right. I think is so Oh, so, so French is just how, how the, <laughs> the, the policies are aligned against him, the zoning is aligned against him, and the people are aligned against him. I just can't oh, wait till he man. eats cake. Oh, <laughs> rough. It's rough. It's rough. It'll be interesting to see what happens. I mean, yeah, it's taller than allowed. Yeah. I wonder if they're going to slice it down. We're bashing someone who isn't an architect who wanted to be an architect. This is so, <laughs> this is what architecture should be about. <laughs> <laughs> Dilettantes. I've been using, I've been tossing that word around lately too, in reference to these um, writers of articles about architects' egos. So oh. this Kareem, we can point out, he is not an architect, and his ego's you know outsized for the whole city. Yeah. Oh man. All right. Any more uh, Kareem <laughs> rashing to go through? <laughs> <laughs> no, I think we're good. I think he's served his time. I think so. Until the next op-ed, maybe there'll be another interview where, where that we get to post and see people run over themselves again to. Be the first to insult him the most hilariously. <laughs> Can we try to get him on the next podcast? Maybe we should do that. Ken, do you want to shoulder that responsibility? I think you would sweet talk him the best. Oh, <laughs> I can do it. <laughs> Great. <laughs> well, does anyone uh, just, we'll move on and we'll, I'm sure we'll have plenty of time to revisit Kareem at some point, but um, does anyone have any endorsements they'd like to share at this point? I'd like to endorse uh, a really cool competition that we're co-hosting with Aaron Willette and Rob Trimbor. Oh, yay. Uh, have you guys noticed that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, the competition is titled uh, Bigger Than a Bread Box, Smaller Than a Building. It's being held in conjunction with an exhibition that is going to be on display at the Boston Society for Architects uh, BSA space from June to October. And, um, and it's the exhibition is looking at the art of the installation. So this competition asks participants to reimagine previous installation projects, uh, revisiting earlier work within the context of the competition brief. It's a really, really interesting topic. Uh, should be a very fun competition, especially for those of you that have done installation work before and you'd like to, you know, revisit that. There's all the information that you need is online at, uh, BTABB dot com. that's uh short for bigger than a bread basket and uh and actually next week aaron is going to be with us on the podcast just to uh, <gasps> tell us a little bit more about the about the competition and the event and uh, the exhibition excellent yeah uh, he was actually scheduled to be on this week but our schedules could not align so it's uh next week fantastic can't wait to talk to but him. but the deadline for the competition is is coming up quick it's february 15th midnight so it's good to uh, to get those submissions in as early as possible, just to make sure that, you know, there's always those last minute technical problems. Don't want to uh, make that. I believe that's also the deadline for covered California's uh, health care under Obamacare. 
you wouldn't want to sign up. So as a public service announcement to all people who are both entering bigger than a bread box, but also in need of health insurance, yeah. February 15th, don't forget. So either either start soon or, or take your choice, healthcare <laughs> or competition. I like the... Um... The piece by Nicholas Carodi, the piece on the um, art fairs. I really, I, I rather enjoy, you know, I like all of you editors and I rather, <laughs> I like all you editors. Boy, I can really speak. Um, white Space, <laughs> the architecture of the art fair. I think it's. Do you need an editor, Kim? Yeah, I think I do. Can, can you cut that out? Um, <laughs> the uh, architecture of the art fair is just, it's really a, a very pleasant and easy read and it's got big words in it and stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Great endorsement. I, I really enjoyed that too. Ken, I can say as someone who edited that piece and really enjoyed both reading it in its beginning form and its end form, it was, I, I think the piece just ended up beautifully and not because of my own intervention, but just because Nicholas <laughs> has this amazing scope that he plays over the entire um all the different instances that we choose to exhibit art in different forms of architecture. So I thought it was a really rich piece. He just goes in and like puts great labels on things. The, the illustrations that he provided as well with the, like the hermit crab in the Louvre. Yeah. Uh, that was just amazing. <laughs> yeah. I like his mashups. <laughs> it definitely. Likewise. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have any comments yet. So that means that it was a smart, well-written. <laughs> Tight. Yeah. Uh, complete <laughs> article. <laughs> Generally, there's an inverse uh, proportional yeah. relationship to uh, number of comments, and, and yeah, but yeah, like I, I also uh, strongly recommend that people take a take a look at that and read it when uh, it's a good long read. Definitely, the one news item I thought was kind of interesting, and it hasn't I haven't seen any comments yet. Is the uh, is the um, Tom Main buying uh, Ray Bradbury's house and tearing yeah. it down? I thought that was oh, kind of yeah. interesting. It doesn't look like a significant building. And I, you know, I, I know Ray Bradbury is a significant writer in our history. I just looked at the house. I'm like, yeah, yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I posted that also, not just because of the celebrities involved, but, you know, it's just so funny how some houses become iconic regardless of whether their architecture really was yeah. because of who lived in there. Yeah. And who knows, maybe Ray Bradbury lived in another house that will become history's version of the Ray Bradbury house, even if this one was just as adequate for that title. But yeah. now it's going to be uh, the middle, supposedly the middle of the, of a five floor main residence um, with or without a swimming pool. I don't remember which floor the swimming pool is supposed to go on. This is all also very, um, none of this has been confirmed, but it's all for, coming from Curb LA who has a tight eye on it. So I, I don't know. I think these things are interesting to, to kind of figure out just how in history we decide to preserve certain celebrity or like buildings just that are important only because someone lived there that is important um, yeah. and which ones are actually architecturally significant. But speaking of other buildings in LA, I want to endorse something that is kind of a ridiculous endorsement, but um, it's for a movie that isn't out yet. It's the uh, newest Cronenberg feature, um, Maps to the Stars, which I had the luck to be able to see somewhere over the Atlantic when I was flying back from Copenhagen. The airline that I was on had it, even though it's not out in the U.S. yet. So that was sweet. <laughs> it had limited release in um, December of last year so that it could be put in the movie and the runnings for um, film awards and such. But it comes out in the U.S. in mid-February. But it's, as I said, Cronenberg's recent film um, about just kind of really crazy family political dynamics of um, child stars in Los Angeles. And there's a good dose of like surrealistic magical realism or magical surrealism, I guess you could call it. And uh, 
just, you know, gross Cronenberg stuff. So I fully recommend <laughs> once that comes out, everyone go see it. And it also just is a lovely image of like the very hokey kind of Sunset Boulevard-ish Hollywood LA image. It's a lot of fun, gross, awesome. <laughs> that's that's my endorsement. Nice. Okay, so I want to endorse two handsome things in in a opposition to gross and surreal. Two handsome things. Is one of them Brad Pitt? <laughs> no, but I always endorse him. That's just a constant endorsement. Brad is kind. He's yeah. Um, no, um, it was on the site today that uh, SOM's Exchange House in London won the AIA Gold Medal. It's their sixth gold medal, and it's a beautiful building. It is so handsome. The photographs of it in the article are just gorgeous. And it's very modern. So it's it looks at the same time very retro in some of these photographs. And it also looks like it was just finished yesterday. It's it's absolutely a beautiful building suspended more or less over a train track. So it's a structural, it's a real um, sort of structural gymnastics to make it work so that the building barely touches the ground anywhere. But um, it's absolutely beautiful. The other handsome thing, have to say it, is Moshe's softies mustache, which is just <laughs> the most beautiful mustache we've ever had on our connect. It reminds me of the Monopoly Man. That's all I have to say. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's Monopoly Man mustache. The Monopoly Man has a pretty amazing mustache. Yeah. So, yeah. It's just a teeny bit longer than most of us. So, um, yeah. Yeah. No, it's, uh, it's you know, Softy had this uh, article in the New York Times, which the, the write-up makes it sound like he was talking specifically about the use of computers in architecture and how that maybe is not the way that architects should be working, that hand sketching, of course, is so important. But really, the article in the Times was like, what books are you reading? What's on your nightstand? You know, what have you been doing lately? So it's a very light, light read in which he mentions the importance of, of sketching. So um, those are my two things. Handsome, both handsome. That's my word <laughs> of the week. As always, you guys can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, RSS, all the others. Oh, our, our iPhone app was just updated recently with some bug fixes and uh, optimization for larger iPhone 6 and 6 Plus screens. So check that out on the App Store and download it if, if, uh, if you haven't yet. If you have any comments, suggestions, or legal questions for Brian, hit us up on Twitter with hashtag our connect sessions, send us an email, connect at rconnect.com, or you can even give us a call at 213-784-7421 with a message up to three minutes. And uh, we might play that on an upcoming episode. And also we would like to solicit from anyone who has them to share a, a horror story that you've experienced in practice or academia or wherever. We're inspired by a recent post in the forum of someone having their job stolen out from underneath them by an insane lowballing contractor. So yeah, send us your horror stories and we're hoping to uh, either through any medium you like, email, Twitter, the Google voice number, and we will hopefully be, have a bunch to gather and feature in a future episode. Funny. Yeah. That thread, it's called Just Lost A-Hole Clients. <laughs> it has taken even a worse twist today. It's it's amazing. It's a crazy, Ooh. amazing story. So go read it, everyone, if you have Maybe it. we I, could develop this into a drama series. Yes. It totally could be. <laughs> I got so I got so angry just reading that that uh, that story that that person posted. What I mean, I it's, know it's ridiculous. Oh, there's crazy people in the world. What can you do? Just the perfect example of how people, some people, just can't respect the work of architects. Anyways, well, so call and share your stories. It'll be like a purge, everyone. Yeah, you know, call, send the stories, and it'll be like purging that anger of of that we all face yeah. so frequently. Sadly. And it can all be anonymous, so you don't have to worry about you know inflicting your your horror on someone else. All right. All right. Thanks, guys. Yeah. Thanks, everybody. Thanks to all you guys out there listening. Hopefully you made it through this whole episode. It was a long one. And we'll talk to you next week. Bye. 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 See you next week.